it's one of those things where, like you said, it's not like, you know, I can't go take it to a car wash and make it, you know, shiny and brand new again and feel good. It's one of those things where, and I didn't even notice it, you know, I'm not saying I was hiding from it, but I just thought about it one day and talking to Cassidy, I was just like, wow, I think I'm depressed, you know, that, 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 uh, that feeling I've been feeling and that mood I've been in. And, you know, I try hard to, you know, smile through the pain and you never, you would never see it on my face, but, um, you know, just being able to have an outlet like this to talk about it, you know, even feels good in itself. I'm Megan Armstrong. Welcome to Life Six Feet Above. Six Feet Above was created when I started to share my story of spending 16 years wanting to be six feet under to now living a life full and happy six feet above. The more that I started to talk about my journey, my struggles and my past, the more I realized people were genuinely interested and not judgmental at all, which is what I'd feared for so long. In fact, other people wanted to talk about their story as well, and for some reason they trusted me to do so. So the Six Feet Above podcast is my way of helping to share other people's stories, finding out what works for them to create a life of happiness. Before we start this episode, I want to let you know it has some explicit language and some very serious subject matter. It may be triggering or sensitive to certain people. Please listen with discretion. This is Brandon's story. So episode 15, I am joined by a, an older friend, not too old, but just a couple years now, uh, Mr. Brandon Chubb, who I met, of course, through fitness, where I feel like I've met a lot of my guests, but in a very different capacity. We've never worked together. He was actually um, a client that came in one day. And of course, when we get men in a group fitness setting, we're like, who's who's this guy? So of course I looked you up. I'm like, oh, he plays for he plays in the NFL and he's got a reputation in the community. And um, you walked in and I have to say, like, I think there's a stigma about NFL players. And you walked in and you were just the most genuinely nice human being that I had met. And it was so refreshing to be like, because I've been around a lot of athletes my entire life. I went to Syracuse football you know uh basketball the whole thing and um you're just like just another guy no i appreciate that uh you you're you're correct with the stigma and, and that's one thing i try to focus on it's not like i go out my way to do it but i'm just being a great great person you yeah. know nice person always leaving a a smile on every encounter you have with somebody because yeah. you never know when it'll be the first or will it be the last and uh, like you said, you met me through fitness and all your network is mostly through fitness. So you just never know who you come, in, come across and who those people come across, you know. So always just trying exactly. to leave a good impression. Just be a great guy. There's no reason to, you know, be exactly. anything else. I like, and I think that's why I like, I was like, okay, we're, we're going to be friends. <laughs> so here we are. Yeah. So um, you're a local boy, Brandon Chubb. Mm-hmm. You are from Marietta, Georgia. Yep. What high school did you go to? Went to Hillgrove High School. Okay. It was um, built in 2006. And so that would be would have been my eighth grade year. And uh, it's right next to McKeesher in Powder Springs. And it was built just because McKeesher had got to a point where it was overflown and they just needed another place to have all these kids go because McKeesher was more of a college campus. It was okay. an old college. So it could hold a large capacity of students, but it just got to a point where it was overwhelming. So then they built my school. So how many how many kids were in your graduating class? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know, but I would say it wasn't anything small. It was a 5A school. So oh, we wow. were we were the you know in the in the top level of 
uh, size-wise of school. So uh, whatever that average number is, I can't give you a number. Got but it. yeah, it was a Got good school. It. So born and raised in Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, what was life like growing up? What did what did your parents do? You've got a brother. Do you yep. only have? It's just Bradley. It's just us two. Yep. Bradley? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what what growing up in in the South and and especially Georgia was like because I'm from upstate New York. Right. It's a whole other world. So uh, it was it was um. You know, I enjoyed growing up in the South. Um, my dad is from Rockmart, Georgia, which is uh, closer to Alabama, the Georgia-Alabama border, like northwest of uh, Atlanta. And my mom is from Cleveland, Ohio, actually, but oh, she okay. grew up in yeah, she grew up in Southwest Atlanta. And so I had you know two parents that were from the area. We grew up in Austell. When I was three years old, we moved to Marietta, and that's the the house we moved to in Marietta is where I spent my whole okay. you know life you know until I was I think twenty two when my brother went to college and my parents moved but it was one of those experiences where you know I grew up with a dad who played football who was into sports mm -hmm. who was you know a, a super figure to you know me and my brother and then my mom was just a strong independent you know black woman who was in corporate world you know at the top of the food chain in her, her in her industry she did affordable housing and you know so she she had an edge to her as well and a motivation that she would you know but still upon me and my brother of yeah. working hard and breaking barriers and staying consistent. Cause like I said, she's from Cleveland, Ohio. She grew up in Southwest Atlanta. So she didn't have this perfect childhood. You know, right. she had, um, two parents that got divorced. Uh, my dad's family is, you know, more close knit because his parents stayed together their whole life. And he has seven other brothers and sisters, my mom, uh, three other brothers and sisters. So we had, a, um, a family that was, you know, hardworking, but also, Oh no, you you could say I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, but it was just big family. You know, yeah. we all cared about each other. Like I said, my parents together had 11 siblings amongst the two of them. So it was all about a family atmosphere and taking care of each other. I had a little brother like you said, yeah. two year two and a half years apart. So, you know, my dad growing up made sure that I took care of him and and even when we would fight and and go go at it he would just make sure that that stayed in the house, yeah. you know, you know, because when we're out in the real world or whether that's in school, football, whether other people's houses and sleepovers, you got, you got, you know, you, I'm the father at that point. I right. got to look out for him. So right. uh, that was life growing up and, and that kind of channel into sports and got us to where we're at today. So, so did he put you in football when you were young or yes. how did that come about? So that's a great question because a lot of people, um, we grew up in a football family and a lot of people think that from day one, my dad put me in a, a football helmet, yeah. but it was more of a, thing where me and my brother looked up to him like I said he was kind of like the superman figure to us and we had a room in our house it was his him in my mom's office and it was painted Georgia Bulldog yeah. uh, wallpaper it had his jerseys his Did he, go, oh, he, went, he to Georgia? went to Georgia okay. yeah so it had his memorabilia his team pictures his NFL team pictures and stuff like that we used to walk around in the house with his you know actual game worn jerseys so it was one of those things you just kind of wanted to fulfill that that legacy or that yeah. you know what he did you wanted to be just like him and so we started off playing all sports up you know basketball baseball soccer football the big four and um by the time he got to at least for me i got to eighth grade in basketball i was playing center and yeah. so growing up i was you know one of the taller kids and center at that point in eighth grade people are starting to grow and, and right. grow into their bodies and i just knew i wasn't and a center by yeah <laughs> right, right. so i knew that wasn't a um a career for me and, right. and so i focused all my energy into football especially going into high school i just kind of wanted to be able to put all that energy and all that focus into one sport and excel at it. So yeah. that's kind of how that happened. And I would say football, because it is a contact sport, we started that around probably 
six or eight years old. Really? Yeah. So we started young and, and, and my brother was the same way. I think his eighth grade year, he stopped playing basketball. Obviously he's more, he's yeah, taller he's than me. Taller than you <laughs> so are. I think, I think he played all the way to high school actually, but he, he had a, uh, a bigger passion for it and, right. and, and to right. sell that. And then kind of took the same path as me as dwindling down to, uh, football. And I think he ran track as well. In, Were in you high always school. a linebacker? Uh, no, at Hillgrove, I was, a um, defensive end growing up. I was when, when like when I was an eight years old and 10 years old and playing middle school ball, I was a fullback. I was a tight end and then, um, get to Hillgrove I'm a yeah. defensive end so kind of finding that niche and my strength and Deanne at the time was my strength like I told you uh at the beginning of this pod we were a brand new school so yeah. we didn't have a lot of talent to pull from that's you know ironic now if you look right. at all the kids we right. put in the NFL but Especially at the time Georgia. right so we didn't have a lot of talent to pull from and so I had to do what was in the best interest of the team and at that time we needed a defensive end because we had a lot of linebackers that could play and win this game so I played defensive end and got to wait for us and spent the year redshirting to develop my skills and the best fit for me then was linebacker. And, and that's how I developed into that. So growing up, I mean, obviously you wanted to kind of fulfill, you know, your dad's dreams as well and, and make him proud. But looking back, do you feel like there's a lot of pressure? Would you have done anything differently? Like, would you still have chosen football and chosen this path knowing what you know now? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, there, like I, like I said, we played every sport, so it wasn't really no pressure I think the only pressure was when we did play a sport, whatever it may have been, we had pressure to sell at it or right. at least give it our all. Right. You know, our dad taught us to never half-ass anything. So whether that's cutting grass or, you know, raking leaves, don't half-ass it. And so even in sports, he could tell if we weren't, you know, all in it on that on that uh, sport or at the game or whatever it may have been. So we would get, you know, uh, scolded about that. But if we wanted to do it, he just made sure he – lined it up so we could sell it in the best way possible and so looking back on it i'm glad i chose football i'm glad that the uh, path uh that i chose because where i'm at today is i can have a foundation with me and my brother and that's two nfl players have a larger platform to just maximize the impact we we uh create into our communities right and and you know it's a lot of nonprofits and a lot of people doing great things but I can't say that we would have had the same impact if I was just a regular guy who just, you know, didn't play sports or didn't wasn't right. on TV, right, you know, right, right, right. And there's no shade to anybody. But I think that's allowed a lot of opportunities for us, not even from the foundation side, but from, you know, meeting people like you or, right. you know, whatever we have, have done or come across in, in, in our uh, path so far. Yeah. Well, I'm honestly just so uh, grateful. You know, I had you in mind a long time ago and I'm like, I don't know if he'll ever, if he'll ever come on here and talk about this stuff. So just want to put that out there that I'm incredibly grateful, especially for men that will come on this show and talk about real issues, yeah. because I think it's much harder for a man to talk about emotions and real life experiences because you are raised differently than a female, right? right? Especially a guy in the NFL. Right. So we're going to dive into all of that, but I kind of want to segue into something that is on the front burner right now, and that's race. Mm hmm. And uh, we talked a little bit about this the other day, and I like mm -hmm. to say I like to save stuff for the actual interview. Um, and and like I told you when we were talking the other day, like I grew up in upstate New York. There was one black family in my whole yep. entire city, you know, village, and I, I really wasn't around anyone else of of color until I went to college. And um, so let's just talk about in Marietta you know, it's not, you're, you're not in like college park. Right. Right. So you're in a different part of Atlanta. It's, it's a wealthier part of Atlanta. Yep. So let's just kind of jump into race in Atlanta 
growing up and yep. where it's at now and kind of where we're going. With I'm it. glad you actually brought that up because I didn't mention it when I talked about Hillgrove earlier, but um, McEachern, this big school who was a ex-college campus, so you have all these kids going there. It's looked at as an elite school. Parents, you know, buy houses in that district so their kids can go to Hill, uh, McEachern when they go to high school. And it got to a point, and this is where race comes in, this is an experience I had, is that um, they built Hillgrove, honestly, to take all the white people out of McEachern and put them in a different school. Really? And so I didn't, you know, I didn't say that because I didn't want to jump straight into it. But yeah, that's why Hillgrove was built. And so it was a lot of uh, redistricting or rezoning different right. districts to get uh, subdivisions. And I remember, you know, in middle school, my parents would talk about it every week on the news. They would just see a new district uh, outline of neighborhoods and subdivisions because some, you know, some subdivision wanted theirs to be district for Hillgrove now instead of McEachern and vice versa. So it was a lot of, um, you know, uh, race being being at play in, in the Marietta area as well, just because you had Powder Springs, which is, I would say, predominantly black right. or has bad areas. And so these kids started going to McEachern and then Hillgrove uh, was built because these parents raised enough concerns and enough, uh, really? you know, uh, uproar to get their kids out that school district. And so um, that's an experience I had with race growing up. But also going into my neighborhood, I told you um, we moved there when I was like three, three or four years old. And it was a nice neighborhood, uh, you know, $400,000 house. This is in 2000 or probably right. 1997. So you can imagine like, um, th but, you know, you don't count for inflation, what that house looks like. And one thing I noticed, and I didn't notice it then because we lived in a cul-de-sac, but all the neighbors and my parents, you know, talked talk to me about white flight, you right. know, when I grew older. But, Did they really? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people moved out and, you know, me not understanding. I'm just thinking they're moving because they want a different house or they're moving because... Right you know, jobs, whatever it may be. What did they say? Did they explain why white people were moving or did they just say this is happening? So they didn't explain it at the time. It's just something I knew because we were in a cul-de-sac. We're the one with the uh, basketball goal in our driveway. Right. So everybody's coming to our house. I'm meeting, all, I know all the kids in the neighborhood. But, you know, growing older, I would bring up a situation and they'd be like, oh, well, that's what they did when in our old neighborhood. And then they would explain and then go into it. And this is, you know, me at 22, 21 years old, college right. educated at this point. So I'm understanding it now. And, you know, looking back on it, you would have neighbors who, you know, didn't like their kids talking or coming over in our driveway. And at the time when you're 10 years old, 15 years old, right. you don't notice it. You just think they're in trouble or they're, you know, their parents right. are in a bad mood. But um, it's just one of those situations. And so that's kind of experiences I've had with race. I've never been um, in a, a predicament where, you know, I'm. You know, whatever you like want to say, severe, right, severe, yeah, we're hearing about right. Now, right. But like, I've I've obviously experienced it, and and you know, from the color of my skin, and and it's always little little minor things here and there, but nothing that's um got in my way of being to where I'm at today. So thankfully for that. You are know? those communities now in Marietta more blended, or are they still very much segregated? Yeah, so I would say they're more blended. Um, Hillgrove is uh probably 60, 40, 60 okay. being white, forty being black. At this point, when I was in school. It was more uh, 85, 15 or, okay. you know, 80, 20, if you want to say. And going back to my old neighborhood, whenever I'm in the Marietta area, I'll just drive by my old house just to see what it looks like. Because I spent 18 years of my life there. And that neighborhood is more blended now. You can see what the kids playing outside, um, the uh, neighbors in the cul-de-sac, whatever it may be. You can see more uh, blending and more diversification, which is a good thing. And, you know, going back to Hillgrove, you see it as well through the sports, through the Right. through whoever you know right. going to a game you see it in the crowd so so this might be a dumb question but i feel like when a school breaks off like that when it comes to sports 
especially football and mm-hmm. basketball, I would assume that your school was a powerhouse compared to. Yeah. So McKe- that's a great question as well, because McKeeshan had a lot of talent and they still do to this day, especially in football. Mm-hmm. I think last year they won the basketball state championship boys and girls, but all those kids that went to Hillgrove, like me, Evan Ingram, my brother, Keen Drake, all these yeah. NFL players that yeah. ended up at Hillgrove. If you had put those same guys and never broke Hillgrove or McKeeshan apart, I mean, that could have been five or six state championships in a row, right. you know, in, in a, in a certain area, we could have been a dynasty. So, um, Growing at Hillgrove, when I was a freshman, the second year Hillgrove was open was the first senior class. So when Hillgrove was open, obviously they didn't accept any seniors because they wanted those seniors right, to have to a go through. yeah because yeah. it would just been awkward and weird for them to not know anybody in their senior year. And uh, so the, I was the first full class or second full class to graduate as a freshman through senior through Hillgrove. And so by that point, the, the program had built up. By the time it was my senior year, we had more talent. Guys were developing. Right. And um, guys from different areas were getting, you know, houses in that area. So they were coming to our school. So, uh, I mean, but we always joke about it. Imagine what could have been if that school never broke off just from basketball, football, swimming. I mean, baseball, McKeeshan is a powerhouse in sports and Hillgrove as well. So you combine the two instead of competing versus each other. It could have been a whole different story. So and that's like one thing I've actually never thought about before Mm -hmm. is is the the competition between white people and black people. Mm -hmm. Right. And they want to compete in in the educational sense or, or, Hey, we just don't, we just don't want to be a part of that black community. But when it comes to sports, I mean, let's just face it. White people like to watch sports and predominantly the NFL Mm -hmm. base or not baseball. Let's say the NFL basketball, Mm -hmm. it's predominantly black, Mm -hmm. right? So you're going to, you're going to bet on these guys. You're going to, um, Who's going to win the Super Bowl? All the things mm-hmm. going on in Vegas, like they're betting on black guys playing yeah. sports, mm-hmm. but yet they don't want their kids being right. a part of it growing up. Right? Like how fucked up is it's, that? It's crazy. And and you think about it now, even the NBA coming back, a lot of players are objecting it because they think, uh, it's you know putting their health at at the, you know, the hands of white consumers. You know, right. just just right. to make a quick buck and to entertain you through the pandemic. And so it's uh it's interesting because like you said. The best players you have, not the best players, but the majority of players you have are black athletes, black players. But then when it comes to off the field things, you want nothing to do with right. them or you treat them. But, you know, when they're in those lines, you you know, they're, they're gods and they're whatever you want to call them. But then it's a totally different thing off the field when the helmet comes off or that jersey comes yeah. off. How do you feel about the NFL coming back? Um, like, do I think it will come back or yeah, do I want it to come back? Yeah. I, let's say, do you think it will come back? Um, I think it will be delayed. Uh, me and you, uh, made a bet this weekend. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it comes back because a lot of livelihoods are on the line for yeah. that. Not even for the players, but you know, arena workers and stadium right, workers right. And, and people who do the ancillary things on game days and throughout the week that make the NFL run. So, um, but I think it will be delayed. Basketball has yet to come back and basketball will come back first. And I think that'll be a good litmus test of how sports can, um, thrive in this in this climate and this, during this pandemic. Um, so, you know, football is a little trickier because every play you're getting hit in the head or, you know, you're getting yanked or whatever it may be. So project, spit, everything yeah. is projected out. Uh, so, I mean, it would be hard for that not to spread unless, you know, it's daily testing and, and still that, you know, players right. are going home to their family and no telling what their family and who right. they're coming across. So it'll be a tricky thing. Um, but hopefully it does come back. And But definitely – I. For a fact, it'll be the lead, at least in my opinion. And do you want to come? You do you want it to come back? I do want it to come back. I um think uh, 
It's a great question because, I mean, I think there's 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 uh, work to be done. The NFL's made great strides in in this um, protesting uh, thing and 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 in this climate with race and what's going on with the police killings and stuff like that with George Floyd. They've come out and and have acknowledged that these things are happening, which they wouldn't have done a year ago or two years ago. Mm -hmm. So just being able to uh, be back on the field to keep that momentum going to make this change really happen and to, uh, you know, highlight it. Like I said, as an NFL right. player, you have a platform. So right. now your voice gets uh, louder, your, your, your actions are magnified. So um, I think it could be a great stage for uh real change. Do you ever feel like the things that are going on, like for instance, we were talking about this the other night, um, you know, NASCAR is taking down the Confederate flag now, mm -hmm. like now it's a good time. Do you ever feel like, we're doing things in society just because we're trying to keep up and make a statement and we're not really doing it for the right reasons versus white people. I see a lot more of my white friends taking pictures with black people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, <laughs> you yeah. were either friends with, with them right. before all this right. or not. Like you and I go back, right. you know, two, three years. Right. And like now right. that it's all going on now, it doesn't mm -hmm. make a difference for right. me, right. for me. But do you see that from the black side looking in or how do you feel about that? So I think uh, we talked about this, like you said, a little bit this weekend. But let's go to your example first of posting your black friend mm -hmm. or, you know, showing that uh, those per, um, performative type of gestures mm -hmm. are, you know, you see kind of through them. But at the same time, you got to look at it as a black person. You just got to look at it as as long as long as it's making awareness. So even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's which helpful, it's helpful okay. because it brings okay. awareness. And with the Confederate flag, that should have been done a long time ago. But the fact that they're doing it is at least addressing the problem. Uh, with the Bubba Wallace thing, they're you know pushing yeah. his car to the to the start line and and you know showing their support. Um, that's helpful, you okay. know, even if they don't mean it. Even if the thirty other NASCAR drivers are just doing it because their boss above them said they have to right. do it. It's still you know people NASCAR fans at home watching yeah. this who are you know thinking you're a god are going to listen right. to you and at least make a change in their daily lives. Like, and like I told you, it helps. The most the most you can do or if you don't think you could do anything, the most you could do is in your in your circle of white friends. If you hear a, a racial slur, you hear something that doesn't really uh, paint black people in a great light. You can just just stop it or just correct it. Right. And you don't have to, you know, post a, a, a picture on, you know, Instagram about what you've done in the past and what your organization right. is going to do, because at the end of the day, actions speak louder than words. So um, I think both both of them. As, as we look at it, as from a black person, it helps because at least, you know, at least even if you faking it, at least draws awareness, yeah. but also making that action to, to yeah. make that change, you know, instilled in the, in the uh, roots of society will help too. I'm so glad you cleared that up <laughs> because I've been struggling with that for a few weeks and that like, well, I don't want to do something just because people are going to look at me and be like, oh, she's only doing that because right. this whole black white thing is going on. But, you know, I was raised to love everyone, right. no matter who they are, what, right. where they're from and. And I've always kind of lived that way. Right. Um, and people are terrible no matter what mm. race, color, religion, right? right? There's good right. people and they're bad people. So I'm so glad you cleared that up because <laughs> if, if the incentive is wrong or it's not, you know, uh, um, necessarily being done for the right reason, if it gets the job right. done, right. then you guys are cool with that. Yeah, it's a okay. victory. It's All a right. small step. I'll take small it. step in a long race. So. I'll take it. Yep. So were you here? Were you in Atlanta when the riots happened a few weeks ago? Yes. Uh I live in, in Vining, so uh right outside the perimeter. Uh and we did a protest. Brianne, yeah. our friend Brianne, yeah. she she uh held our own protest in Sandy Springs that we were a part of and 
and that was good to get our voices heard. Yeah. I think the reception was real great out there. And that's one of those areas, suburbs, like Mar even Marietta, you can you can go in the suburbs and kind of escape this. You know, right. you don't really have to face this. You don't have to drive through Marietta Street downtown and get to home or go to work. Right. So you don't really have to, you know, really be in it. Be in it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to at least raise awareness in a peaceful way in, in Sandy Springs or in Marietta or wherever it may be is um is a exhilarating moment as well just to see the reception because a lot of these people never experienced you know it's a lot of white people they have a lot of privilege and never experienced something yeah but at least they acknowledge and they're aware of it and then yeah. and, and that's a great thing as well because the fact that the fact that the matter is and i told uh people this i was on tyler cameron my friend yeah i was on his instagram live and i talked to him about this a little bit the fact that um it's never happened to you doesn't mean it didn't doesn't exist right so at least you acknowledge it and then secondly ask yourself, am I a part of the problem that I just acknowledged or, or am I not? Right. And if you're not, then that's a good thing, but help other people who might be part of the problem that are in your circle that you can reach that listen right. to you. And, uh, that's how progress is made. How else can we help? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you, cause you do have a lot of white friends. Yeah. Um, and I just want to know, you know, selfishly, like what else can we do? Yeah. I think, I think a lot of the discussion right now is like okay, we're giving all these examples of racism. Like, we all we know that's happening. Yep. Like, it's it's clear. It's out there. It's always happened. It's just now it's it's being recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not going to solve the problem. So, how can we help you? What can we do? Whether it's for the right reason or the wrong reason, besides, like you said, the example of just kind of standing up for mm -hmm. people and being like, you know, you don't need to use that right. word or whatever. Uh, you could definitely help. Uh, one by starting with the root. So. You know, racism isn't taught. Like you said, you grew up in Syracuse, New York, but it was a lot of white people around you. Yeah. But, you know, you just said to me as a black man and we became friends instantaneously. And same with me. I grew up in Marietta. I have black friends. I have a lot of white friends and yeah. I still have a lot of white friends. Going to Wake Forest had even more white friends around. Say, you know, so. gonna, that was about, I was about to go there next. I'm like, so, Wake Forest. Wow, that's, right, a, that's pretty predominantly right. white school. So um, it's one of those things that racism was never taught to me. I was just aware of what what being the color of my skin, what could right. uh, be presented to me in a negative way. But it was never treat this other race the, the wrong way or we're superior or nothing like that. Right. And so that goes to, you know, if you're if you're a parent and you have young children, just instilling them that, you know, there is no right and wrong when it comes to skin color. Yeah. And even though they might not see color at the same time, they might be in a situation that they might start being around people who do see color right. and that could rub off on them. So at least now they acknowledge that um, or they're aware of that. This so when happening. it does come, this is happening yeah. Yeah. so that they can, you know, hold hold themselves accountable when it's time to uh, make those decisions or those friends or that whatever it may be. And then people who, um, like I told you, if you're in a uh, predominantly white uh, friend circle and something isn't right or something is said that you don't, you know, doesn't sit well in your yeah. heart, they wouldn't be saying if one of your black friends around that or that you wouldn't repeat them when you're black friends, just acknowledge it. You don't have to say, oh, like I'm never friends with you again, right. but you know, at least, you know, put them in a uh, situation where social proof and embarrassment will be caused if, yeah. you know, something isn't correct. Yeah. Just call them right, out. Just right? call them out. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I had a, um, on father's day this past Sunday, I had a long conversation with my dad and he's 66. Again, he grew up in upstate New York too and, and played hockey, which is yeah. also predominantly white. Yep. Um, he's a lawyer, so we kind of got into talking about the politics of everything happening. And I guess for me, I just feel like it's going to be really hard to change. Um, it's going to be really hard to change. I think the opportunity, and you touched on this, the opportunity is with 
our age group, the 20s mm -hmm. and 30s, the people that are about to have children, it's the next generation. Right. Like these 50 and 60-year-old white men that right. have been raised to think right. that they are above black men, right. they're not going to change right. at this point in life. Mm -hmm. We are who we are, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of goes along with the mental health and wellness too. Like you've been raised your entire life, 50, 60, 70 years, all these guys in Congress and mm -hmm. the House, like predominantly 67-year-old white men, mm -hmm. they were raised with privilege. We are not going to change that. Right. That is not, mm -hmm. they're not going to change who they are. Mm -hmm. They might start doing things, you know, better mm -hmm. for the wrong reason, like we talked about. But I think the next, the, the opportunity is with the next generation living by example, um, you know, treating everyone equally and, and teaching our younger 20s and teenagers that like, this is unacceptable right. and that we are all in this world together. Right. And, I, and I see it as. Even with, you know, stuff we do with the Chud Foundation, we, we use, we target kids in the community just because they're more moldable. It's just like mm -hmm. pouring concrete, you know, yeah. the, the, the quicker you do something with the concrete, the, the easier it is to shape. And the longer you wait, the harder it gets to exactly. shape until, until, you know, so like you said, those guys who are 60, 70 years old, who've been doing this for 70 years or had right. this thought process. Right. Um, it's going to be really, really hard to change their mindset. Hopefully, you know, even if they don't change their mindset, they accept or at least acknowledge like you can, you can acknowledge that racism is this and that right versus wrong when it comes to this race thing and still not change. Right. But at least if you acknowledge it, you're more aware of it and you might, you know, think twice about something and or maybe not contribute. Yeah, exactly. It, right? Cont contribute. You can still, you can still agree with whatever you've been doing for the past 70 right. years. Hopefully you don't, but you can still agree with, but at least you're aware of it. You're more mindful and you might not pour more fuel in the fire now. Right. And I guess, you know, to basically contradict what I just said, it's never too late to change, whether that's to change your physical being or your mental health or the way you view other people. Right. I mean, I guess there's still an opportunity. Right. I guess it's going to be way just, harder, but yeah, be way harder. I think I, I'm looking at like the political yeah. level, yeah. right? The, mm -hmm. the politics of it all. Um, great segue to Wake Forest, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So you graduated uh, and did you get well, stupid question? Did you get a full ride to Wake Forest or what? Yeah, full scholarship. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, my recruiting journey was a difficult time in my life because we were this new school, like I've told you, and we weren't on you know the maps of recruiters and college coaches at the time. Got we it. were kind of overlooked, um, and I was one of the pioneers of the guys to play football for yeah. that school. So I kind of had to set the foundation. And, you know, we had a guy above me, Sinjin Days, who was the first, uh, he was in the class of the first freshman to senior to graduate. So he went off to Georgia Tech because he was an outstanding player. He should have had way more offers. But, uh, he, I mean, he went to Georgia Tech, had a great career, and, you know, everything happens for a reason. And so I come along right behind him, and I'm getting recruited to Furman, Georgia Southern, Chattanooga, going into my senior year. So it was, it was really late. I went to my senior year with zero offers. So now I'm filling out applications, just trying to get in as a student at this point and, and working on my SAT and SCT, ACT scores. And, you know, these double A schools like Georgia Southern, Furman um, come along and then App State ends up offering me right at the end of my high school senior year. So I commit to App State and a week if signing day is February 4th, which is a Wednesday, the Thursday before signing day, Wake Forest comes to my school mm. and says, hey, um, we heard about Brandon. We want to take a look at him, have him come to the campus. Uh, somebody just decommitted, so we have a scholarship available. We can't promise anything, blah, blah, blah. So I met with them, and you know, I called my dad, and the first thing he said is, all right, cool, Like, let me know what time. And so we went up to Wake Forest that Friday, Saturday. I committed and then uh, signed to Wake Forest officially that Wednesday. So it just happened 
at the uh, drop of a hat. But it was an awesome opportunity because uh, Wake Forest did a lot for me from a career standpoint, but also from a man standpoint. Yeah. You know, I learned a lot. I was it's Wake Forest. We call it the Wake Forest bubble because Winston-Salem, like, is the, one of the most impoverished cities per capita in the nation. Really? So that's a it's a big food desert. Um, it's a lot of things, but Wake Forest is like a subdivision. It's only four thousand kids. It's literally like a subdivision. It's three ways to get in. They're all gated entries, and inside Wake Forest, you got people from Syracuse, you got people from Connecticut, you got people from Delaware. So you have these households that can, you know, pay seventy thousand dollars a year for tuition, and their parents or you know lawyers or CEOs and stuff like that. And so they're kind of you know oblivious to the world around them. They've been in the, kind of this bubble, and now yeah. they're back in this bubble, and. Um, so I had I had a taste of that and I got to um, to experience that. And I think that helps us from a growth standpoint, too, because it opens your mind to, to how everybody else acts. You know, so now I can sit in a room with you or sit in a room with her or sit in a room with somebody else and um, it not be awkward interactions or I know how to deal with the situation from right. a leadership standpoint or a communication standpoint. And you learn a lot. You meet a lot of people. Like you said, your network with uh, fitness, like, same way with weight. My network right. through uh, weight four is because the American Express, you know, his granddaughter is a, a freshman in the same class as me or something like that. You get to um, experience a lot of different cultures, backgrounds and uh, be beliefs and views, even right or wrong. But you right. get to learn from them. Right. I remember my freshman since we're talking about race, my freshman year, a K.A., I won't say his name, but <laughs> we were we were coming back from a frat party and we were in the same dorm. And he was um, called me an N word. Long story short. And we got into it and, and I handled the situation, but that was my big wake up call that I'd never been called the N word in my life. And I grew up in Marietta. So, wow. you know, I'm around a lot of white people and it was just one of those wake up calls that, um, the world is different and not everybody views yeah. me the same, you know? How did you handle the situation? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not going to let you bypass yeah, that. Yeah, not the dude out. Yeah. Yeah. So like that anger, that aggression came out. Yeah. Huh? So, I mean, he, uh, it was one of those things where, I mean, he was a lot of, a lot, even people in his own fraternity didn't really couldn't really stand him and uh and so he just came off came off um mouthing his mouth and i kind of know we're all you know intoxicated and then um he doubled down on the statement and i asked or before that I tell him don't say it again yeah. you know just it's not yeah. you know i have it's all my white friends right? are with yeah. me too you know so it's not like it's something that they're agreeing or i'm in a bad situation or a bad uh environment it's like everybody's just like yo you're being a you're being a dick he doubles down on it um knock him out and I honestly became a legend for like three months on the <laughs> campus because everybody was so happy because that dude, they just knew his personality right. and knew how he was. And obviously he had probably been saying it amongst them and they were just uncomfortable with it as well. Right. But right. it right. was one of those situations where it was a wake up call that just because people didn't see me for the color of my skin in Marietta or people said to me on the football team or white doesn't mean everybody's like that. Right. And it's, you know, got to be aware of that. What is playing college football like due to one psyche? Um, it could be a, a false sense of reality depending on what school you go to. Wake Forest is a high academic school, so even Syracuse as well, you, yeah. you will understand this, that, I mean, they just don't let anybody in, even if you're great at football. So um, you have to keep a, a academic rigor and academic standard to an extent, but you also have to... Uh, perform on Saturdays or whatever day your sport plays and do it at a high level. So, um, and while being independent away from family, a thousand miles or a hundred miles from home, wherever you may have come from. So it's a lot of adjustments and a lot of things you have to, you know, as a grown man or grown woman adjust to and grow up to at a quick pace. And so 
whether that's being homesick and still having a lot of pressure on you being the top recruit and they expect you to do certain things during games at a young age or being, you know, somebody who was under recruited like me and and now having a chip on my shoulder that I got to prove that I belong here and prove that I'm just not a a quota. I didn't meet a quota or a a, a scholarship to, uh, you know, just fill a quota or make a recruit look good. So, right. Um, like you it's just, gotta be hard to be right. like, wait, there is an opportunity here, but also yeah. like, screw you for not looking at me right. beforehand right. or, or, you know, screw the, the high school I, that split off that I didn't yeah. have a good opportunity. It's funny because the, the coach who came to, to, to recruit me, uh, that on that Thursday came yeah. to Hillgrove high school, I ended up having really, you know, mixed feelings towards him, even while he was a coach for me at Wake Forest. Um, just because, like, even when I got to campus, I was treated as this, like, guy who, yeah. you know, at least to, to him, I was treated as this guy who can't play at this level, was just right. kind of given the scholarship because somebody dropped out. So yeah. it was like a hand-me-down. And he, he he was there my first three years, ended up going to a different school. But, you know, I, I sailed and, and, and exceeded expectations. So uh, it felt good to, you know, do that. But at the time, when I'm 18, 19, it was hard, you know. Yeah. Especially, you know, when my friends are at Georgia Tech and Alabama and right. Ole Miss and they're right. playing and catching touchdowns right. as, you know, freshmen. And I'm a redshirt sophomore and waiting for my time to come, right. waiting for the coaches to believe in me, even though I'm doing all this stuff at practice and kind of just being pushed aside because the guy they recruited was higher rated than me. And now I have to you right. know overcome that, you know, politics are involved as well. So. so does that create a sense of insecurity? Uh, so I would say a chip on your shoulder, at least for me. A blow of the ego? Yeah, it's so it could be a chip on your shoulder could be mm-hmm. that it could be two opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Some people have chips on their shoulder, mm-hmm. overcompensate, and so that insecurity is triggered right away, and so they overcompensate for that insecurity. Especially if they have an ego involved, then yeah. it's even worse. For you, so, as a motivator, it's, so it's a motivator. Yeah. So some guys who and you can know those, you, you sniff those guys out who have chips on their shoulders. Yeah, that are it just kind of repels you and yeah. it, it jumps off the screen, and you would never know because I'm always smiling, I'm always positive. Right. So my chip on my shoulder isn't like fuck the world because right. Wake Forest right. didn't want to, you know, or Georgia didn't want to give me a scholarship. Right. It's just kind of like, all right, you didn't believe in me. I'll, sh- you know, I'll show you better show than I can tell up. you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So. It's like what I always say about guys. I'm like, ugh, confidence over cockiness. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's when a, a level guy is to, cocky, yeah. it's because yeah. they're so insecure. Yeah. But when a guy is confident, it's because they're motivated. Yeah. And they know what they want and they know mm-hmm. that they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're going right. to have to work hard for it. And I feel like confidence you can feel from a person when they enter the room, mm-hmm. cockiness you can like sniff out. 100%. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a different sense, you know. So, um, you're you confident, you, you, you know, you're you're about your your business, but a cocky guy is going to let you know instead right. of showing, you know, it's just, and no, I mean, cocky guy or girl, it's just it's nobody likes that, you no, know, at least me, no, I, I hate that. Same. Yeah. And that's probably why we get along. <laughs> so, you're, you're approaching the end of college. Mm hmm. And we're thinking NFL, mm-hmm. right? How does I I don't even know how the process works. I mean, you're obviously you were obviously good enough to get drafted, mm-hmm. and you went to hold on, you went to the Panthers, Rams, Rams, As damn a it. Rookie, okay. Yep. Um. So the process is one of those where, when you're eligible, you're eligible after three years, so you can go after three years, or you can wait till you graduate, and then you uh, can go into the NFL. And obviously, I waited till I graduated, so I graduated that December. Um, and what was your degree in? Just economics. Okay, okay. And so uh, the draft is April. So I may or January through April, I'm uh, training. So I trained in Duluth at Chip Smith. Um, and you just train for combine. You train for uh, private workouts. And that's just kind of like an interview. Those are the interviews. Yeah. Like you're showcasing your athleticism, your skills. And the school and the uh, the teams come to you. 
Uh, so pro days, they come to your college and you you, you showcase their combines. Okay. Everybody goes to Indianapolis at the Colt Stadium. Got and, it. and that's what you see on TV. That's what and, we see on TV. Okay. And, and they're, they're there as well. So you have two opportunities. And then from there, that's when they make their evaluations. And then draft night is when they select you, uh, whether that's first round, seventh round, or undrafted. And you go to your respective team that uh, following weekend after the draft. And then it just goes from there. So then you're a rookie. Uh, you're on the team going through mini camp, trying to make the team. And then cuts are made the the first weekend in September. So a week before the first game. And then the, the season starts. So it, it jumps right like that. And um, you just have to be ready to go wherever. You just have to be ready to right? go wherever. So like like I was in Duluth uh, training uh, and then L.A. two weeks later after the uh, draft and went there, was in Oxnard where we had our uh, mini camp at. I know Oxnard. Yeah, so we were just there for three months, and then that led to training camp, which we did at UC Irvine, and and then they that went back to uh, – we went back to Thousand Oaks where our practice facility right. was, and then season started. So what started. round were you drafted? So I was undrafted, actually. You were? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Got it. So, so I was uh, – I, I had a draft grade from the third – or the fifth through seventh round, and uh, draft day – the Rams only selected five players and four of them were offensive players. So okay. they traded a lot of their, they had more picks. They traded a lot. That's the year they took Jared Goff number one overall. And so they just had slim pickings, you know? So all those guys, they were yeah. trying to rebuild their offense. And so, um, my agent was on the phone with them, uh, trying to get me drafted. Uh, and they used that last spot on a wide receiver. So then I came in undrafted with 22 other guys as rookies. And uh, just went from there. So does that chip on your shoulder come back? Oh at this yeah, point? <laughs> yeah. And it's just kind of like my mo at this point. It's right. like, all right, well, this happened, you know, in 2011. Now it's happening, you know, as a as a rookie in the NFL. And so it was something that you know, um, God gives his biggest battles for a stronger soldier. Mm -hmm. So it was just one of those things where I was I, I handled it well. I still had a chip and motivated me even more. And um, it just started all over. So it wasn't. It was obviously disappointing and devastating to me. I watched the whole draft. So three days of three-hour programming, God. just sitting on the couch, you know, just waiting for my phone to ring. And uh, and so when that opportunity came, I just tried everything I could to seize it, you know, yeah. in L.A. Through, yeah. through all that. And I, so, and granted, I've never, you know, played at yeah. a professional level, but I would have to imagine I started swimming, competing when I was five, and I was very, very good growing up. And when I stopped swimming, it was like I lost my identity. Mm -hmm. And I would have to imagine it's it almost feels like that. Like you prepare your whole life yeah. for football and then you get to the draft and it's just got to be this like sinking yeah. feeling at the end of day three. And so having that feeling was a great wake up call. And then two years, fast forward two years later, my second year in the NFL, I mm -hmm. tear my ACL. So those are two instances where the end of the tunnel, you can see the light and you don't know how fast you're going to reach it. So then you have to mentally prepare for that. And so after I tore my ACL, I was, I was realizing that, you know, this is a eight month injury. I might not ever come back right. from it and be the same. So I got to prepare for life after uh, football. And then that's when I started doing things with business and, and, and networking to at least position myself uh, and use, you know, leverage my weight force degree, leverage, you know, people I came across while I was at weight force to uh, position me so that if football ever stopped, because it is a contact sport, it's a hundred percent injury rate. So you never know when that day is coming uh, that I would be ready for it and not uh, be forced into it. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to, uh, and, and I hope I still can do this, retire on my terms. You know, that's, yeah. you know, no better feeling than that to be able to 
drop the mic when you want to and not when somebody slaps it out your hand, right. you know? Right. So, right. Which brings us to this year, mm -hmm. right? So where does it stand with you in the NFL so I'm a, right now? Yeah. So I'm a free agent. I was, um, so took, from the Rams to the lions to the Panthers. To the Panthers. Yep. Okay. Okay. And so the past two years I've been with the Panthers this year or this time, this July, 2019, actually, I had a surgery right before camp, a uh, knee surgery, just a, a small knee scope and kind of rushed that back because I wanted to be ready for yeah. camp and, and perform my best. And that kind of, you know, made my injury a little worse. So then I went on IR for the whole year, injured reserve right. for uh, people who, who may not be acclimated with that term. And IR just means you're on the team, but you're not playing. You right. can't play for the whole year. Right. You're on an injury list, basically. And after that, came to this free agency. So my contract was up. Was up this year. Mm -hmm. at, year. The, at the end of the season. Yep. Okay. So, uh, so now I'm a free agent. And then I had to get the, another knee surgery for the same problem because it never got better. And so I'm still battling that right now, but i um, trying to sign a contract right before training camp starts, which would at this point be July 24th. But I think obviously it'll be pushed yeah. back. So I have a little bit more time, but um, just trying to get this knee as healthy as possible so I can perform. So where are you mentally right now? That's a great question. I was, you know, and you know, I was this big tough guy, you know, growing an all male family with just one mom mm -hmm. or one, obviously one mom, but just one, <laughs> one uh, female. Um, so you have this macho to you, right? Not like, uh, not like super bro-y, but just like, you know, I don't cry. I'm tough. Right. I'm a, you know, the man, you know, uh, stereotypes, whatever. And so I never realized this, but I've been depressed for, you know, a year and a half just cause I could never get over this hurdle. And it's not something that I'm, you know, I do everything, you know, how hard I work. I just, uh, or pay attention to every detail with this rehab. And it's just, I can't get over the hurdle of getting my knee completely healthy, and I've had four surgeries now on it, you know, since July. So July, then October, and then February 2020, and then the last one was just May 19th. Mm. All, um, all by different doctors, except the last two were by the same doctor. But um, you know, just getting healthy, and and it's frustrating because you feel good at one point after the surgery, and then it just hit a wall, right. and then you just can't get over that wall, right. and then you're like, all right, well, the problem's not fixed, so I got. And so you know, me with scope house, I was you know doing scope house twice a week. I was one of the biggest, you know, scope ambassadors just because I loved it so much. Yeah. And I would tell all my friends yeah. about it. We even had an event or our child foundation which event. Is where, with so just so y'all know, Sculpt House was my former job, which I started and created the workout. And that's where I met Chubb. Mm -hmm. He walks in and he saw the treadmills, which is it's human powered treadmill. Yep. And you and Evan wanted to run and uh, <laughs> yeah. crushed them. Crushed them. <laughs> so um, yeah, so we, we met there. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's depressing because I can't use my body the way, even as a normal person, take football aside. I'm just a, a health conscious fit and I love working out. I have a garage gym now, so I love working out. But it's finding that balance of being competitive and having that chip on your shoulder, but not overdoing it because right. you're going to hurt yourself even more. And then it's just kind of like, you know, when can I work out or when can I lift or when can I, you know, be healthy, just sitting on the couch, feeling normal and not, you know, being that guy who is feeling pain going down the stairs right. or, you know, just doing right. normal activities is depressing. It's 26, you know? Yeah. So. I, it's a, and, and I give you so many props for being able to say like, I have been depressed for a year. And yeah. Most guys won't say yeah. that ever. You'll never hear him say right. it because there is such this stigma, this right. toxic masculinity, like don't be yeah. a pussy, man up, right. you know, don't cry, exactly. whatever. And it's so, it pisses me off so much because, um, you know, the highest suicide rate in the country are men in their 50s. Mm -hmm. So they go through 50 years of suppressing this, suppressing mm -hmm. it, going through injuries or whatever it is, not even sports. Yeah. 
and they finally just are like, I'm, I'm done. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to do this anymore. Right. And they tap out. Right. And it, it does. It makes me so sad because if they talked about it more, especially a guy of your size, a guy mm. of your confidence level, mm. you do walk in the room and you, you own the room. I feel like, you know, I get that. I understand that because people think the same about me. But if people only knew what was going on behind right. closed doors. And I'm not a guy who, and you know from following me on Instagram, just being around me, I'm not going to. Shit. I don't know. I don't like attention, you know, yeah. so I'm not going to, you know, if, I'm not going to blast right. out what's going on. Right. I'm not going to blast out, uh, you know, anything. And I'm also going to not just openly tell people or right. I'm not going to, you know, I try to, you know, suppress my feelings and just kind of deal with it internally and, and motivate myself. I'm a, I'm a great self motivator. So I don't really need all this, you know, external, you know, motivation or whatever it may be because inspiration. I have inspiration because I've had that chip on my shoulder. So then I take that into dealing with issues like this where, well, I can get over it because I got over, you know, I got over ACL right. injury. I got over, you know, being undrafted. I got over being under recruited and still a sale. So you kind of had that competitive um, future with uh, mental health. And, right. and that's not good. You know, so. and I think this is huge. This is one of my biggest points because depression, mental health, it is it's it's not tangible. Mm -hmm. You know, you take your knee. Let's fix the knee. Let's take, you know, your, your career in the NFL and let's get you on another team like we can fix it. Like depression is arbitrary. Yeah. It's just out there. And the way we feel is, is right. how it's determined. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where, like you said, it's not like, you know, I can't go take it to a car wash and make it, you know, shiny right. and brand new again and feel good. It's one of those things where, and I didn't even notice it, you know, I'm not saying I was hiding from it, but I just thought about it one day and talking to Cassidy and I was just like, wow, I think I'm depressed. You know, that, 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 yeah. uh, that feeling I've been feeling and that mood I've been in. And, you know, I try hard to, you know, smile through the pain and you never, you would never see it on my face. Right. But, um, you know, just being able to have an outlet like this to talk about it, you know, yeah. even feels yeah. good in itself. So Cassidy is your wife. Mm -hmm. And when you finally said, like, I think I'm depressed, like, what was her reaction? I mean, she, she, uh, wanted me to, you know, see a therapist and had that's... she seen it? Did she kind of agree with you? She, I mean, it made sense once I said it, okay. like, you know, certain things, like I would be grouchy for little things or, you know, um, irritable, irritable, or yeah. just not being as cheery or yeah. not having as, as much, you know, social battery at some points, just because, you know, it would, would die after a certain point of I thinking about a moment and then right. just, you know, put me in a funky mood. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, and she recommended therapy, but this is the time that COVID was happening mm -hmm. when I really realized it, like, you know, early February. So I couldn't really do much about it through, except through like telemedicine. But right. I wanted to, you know, if I if I did it to have somebody like how I'm sitting across from you right now to, you know, get the full experience of it. But um, also just, you know, me reading a lot, you know, takes my mind off it. I have a book club. So now it's more social uh, aspects in my life, even during this pandemic. So I'm able to at least have an outlet to, you know, not talk about it, but, you know, talk to people you right, know and, right. and, and you just have a uh, social Which life is important but also like you know you want to be aware of that because if you just keep distracting distracting right. distracting it's still right. there exactly right you go to bed at night yeah. and you're in your own head anyways yeah right and that's one thing that like you know i still deal with sometimes when i get in my my funks is i'll get distracted but i also very much have to like focus on what's worked for me in the past exactly so what what are what are the things you're doing right now to kind of Help yeah, I just, situation. I just, uh, I have a great pastor. So I just, he, uh, does his sermons online or they record their, the Sunday service every, right. uh, Sunday online as well. So I just watch sermons whenever I get in, um, uh, in a funk 
and you know the, the bible speaks to me and the scripture speaks to me so i'm able to uh have some at least assurance and some uh, faith through that mm-hmm. and then uh as well as just you know telling myself it'll be all right and you know looking at little things in my life that other people don't have whether it's opportunities or uh just you know things around me that God's blessed me with and over my life that, you know, cheer me up, that it could be worse. Yeah. Great. It It could be worse. You know? Well, I think that's, so I talked to a guest on my um, last episode and and she talked about, I forgot the terminology, but it's basically doing the reverse. So whatever you're feeling, you do the reverse of. So if you're feeling really down and like, poor me, poor me, poor me, right. Mm -hmm. What am I actually grateful for? What's good in my life? And focus on, and it like tricks your brain. Right to kind of flip-flop mm-hmm. of, of getting out of that, right. you know, funk at that And moment. so that's why I always try to, um, throughout my day, just always, you know, think of positive things as far as, like, you know, something that's coming up in three days. I could get, yeah. you know, work myself up get to get a little excited for, it, for it, yeah. you know, or, you know, thinking about, you know, what I'll do in two weeks or what, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. Just trying to work. see the positive things, you know. Yeah. So did, um, you've obviously talked to a therapist. Were, did you ever talk about medication? So I haven't talked to a therapist. Oh, yet. I thought you had. No. Okay. So I was saying the only only way I would be able to right now is through telemedicine, and I wanted to and be you able. Don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, I want to. And I mean, if it came it came to a bad a bad uh, situation, I would obviously go and seek emergency help through telemedicine or right. whatever it may be. But um, I want to, you know, just get immersed in the experience, just like when you, you know, play chess. I played a lot of chess. I hate playing online because it's, it's just right. a, it's it's experience, totally you know. Yeah. So. Um, obviously mental health isn't chess, but just right. kind of that experience of being in the analogy. room and, and, yeah. and, and feeling the energy, you know, feeling, yeah. feeling the uh, vibes. And I, I think something like this is going to be helpful for you anyways, because it's almost like that release when you finally say it out loud and you put your story out there and you're like, well, right. this is me like right. judge away. And right. that's why I finally started. That's why I finally started the podcast. Cause I'm like. I don't give a fuck anymore. Yeah. Like I've thought the worst things about myself. Like you cannot possibly think anything right. that I haven't already thought. Right. Right. So when right. you get to that point, it's like free. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, here I am. Take right. it or leave it. And even with your podcast, you saying something and letting it all out. You might not know who's listening. You might, exactly. might go through the same thing. And that even, even having that, you know, being able to acknowledge that I might be helping somebody else through this as well yeah. is fulfilling and helps with that. Especially you know, in you know. the sports world. Right. I mean, uh, the studies that they do, especially after guys are out of the league and they're looking at their brains. I mean, yeah. it, it does affect yeah. them, you know, physically and mentally, but like mm-hmm. it's concerning. It's concerning what they have to go through yeah. and, and kind of keeping up um, at that level. Yeah. You know, and then what happens when that level is taken away from them? You take a guy like Junior Seau, who was mm-hmm. one of the best linebackers ever, and you would think he had he's a great, great looking guy, got all the girls, had all this money, lives in San Diego, which isn't isn't cheap, and it's mm-hmm. a it's a nice living if you live in San Diego. And, you know, he, he blows his head off and you know, ten years after he left the league. And it's not because he didn't have money or because he didn't enjoy, you know, the material things of right. life. He had everything you could imagine, but it was just you know, mental health at that point and, and, and being, um, you know, out the league and not having that, like you said, you lose kind of an identity and maybe mm-hmm. he struggled with that. Maybe CTE played, I mean, CTE definitely played a part in it from the studies they did on his brain, but you know, just all that, uh, uh, you know, mounted up pressure, pressure or yeah. tension or whatever it may be. And, and not knowing how to deal with not it, knowing how to deal never with it. being coached right. emotionally, right. only being coached physically. And like I said, he's looked at as one of the best linebackers ever. So you probably had, 
you know, fear of going to ask for help and right. being vulnerable, right. you know, because people well, are looking at you like, why is you going to stay out yeah. here? You know, yeah, you've you been, have everything you could right. possibly want. Yeah, you've been knocking dudes' heads off for, mm-hmm. you know, you're this tough guy. I see you as this tough guy, this superhero. Like, you yeah. know, so maybe he thought that's how he would be perceived as well if he, you know, spoke out about yeah. it. So I think therein lies the next opportunity with the next generation, especially of young male athletes, teaching them that, yeah, sports is important, but how do they deal with things emotionally? And mm-hmm. it's not just about your physical being and it's not just about the cars that you can buy and the, and the you know, jewelry you can buy right. when you sign that deal. Right. There's so much more to life. Right. And you're, you're doing that with the Chubb mm-hmm. Foundation, mm-hmm. right? So tell yeah. us a little bit about the foundation, how it started and, and where you're at now. So it uh, started because I, when I mentioned what's Salem earlier about being a food desert and the Wake Forest bubble. So you step off outside of Wake Forest's campus it's a whole different uh, scenario. The neighborhoods are different. Right. The streets look different. The buildings look different. And so going into my junior year, I wanted to, you know, do something off the field and put my time to use. You know, obviously, we play on Saturday, so the weekends are kind of off limits. But that Sunday is, you know, really our only rest day. And so it's this organization that was called Help Our People Eat that still goes on to this day. But they would take sack lunches and drive around these impoverished communities when kids don't have those, you know, lunch meals that they're right. getting through Monday through Friday. So they're not really getting proper nutrition and we would pass them out and, uh, at the community centers or at the neighborhood center or whatever it may be. And so that, that, that feeling and that, that, um, fulfillment, fulfillment from giving yeah. back really, uh, stuck with me. So when I got to the NFL, uh, going into my second year, when I tore my ACL, I had all this free time. I always knew I wanted to give back, but I didn't really know how I could use my platform effectively to right. do that. And so it was just a, it was a perfect opportunity. October twenty first, my birthday. Georgia Tech played at Wake Forest, or Wake Forest played at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. So I got to watch a Wake game, you know, twenty, right tw- 20 minutes down yeah. the road. And so I thought it'll be cool to have kids come to this game with me and you know take them out and show them a good time, but also you know let use my you know network at Wake Forest to get me on the field, get me in the locker right. room, so these kids can dream bigger. That's the whole thing about our camp. We 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 want kids to dream bigger. That's why we do it at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Yeah. Even if you don't become a football player, just knowing that this is in your backyard or you've never been here, you know, that gives you no, you know, no motivation to succeed, right. you know. So Well, you only see it on TV. Exactly. It, it's like that doesn't exist. It doesn't that's, exist. That's it's fake. it's, it's fictional, like, right? When yeah. they're actually there in person, they're like, yeah. Oh shit, this right. is real. Like this could happen. Exactly. So that 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 event at Georgia Tech jump started our foundation. I took like ten kids, but to enable to do it. And uh, not have any liability because you're taking these kids right. from their parents to right. downtown Atlanta in a van with some random driver. Um, <laughs> I had to get the foundation started just yeah. so I could get uh, some protection from a liability standpoint. And so Evan Rosenberg, uh, my agent and, and a great friend of yours as well, he uh, just having a legal background helped, you know, jumpstart that yeah. and get that rolling. And so from there, you know, Bradley came into the league a year later. And so we had two platforms and we just wanted to maximize it through, you know, our community and through yeah. our uh to our to our youth because like like i told you with the concrete you know you want to get it while it's still wet as wet as possible because yeah. you can mold it and, and kind of shape it in any form you want uh rather than when they're you know 25 or 18 because it's just a little more you know dry and it's yeah. harder to you know make yeah. that change or that impact last and so that's what we've been doing with our foundation we do initiatives like entrepreneurship programs um chess programs we do our annual camp we do holiday events where we give back to uh families in the community for Thanksgiving dinners or Christmas right, dinners, you right, know, just right. taking that pressure off parents to 
provide for their kids when they could prioritize other things like yeah. light bills or, you know, well, a whatever. A lot of them only, you know, may only have one parent at exactly. home, right? So exactly. for them to, to know that there are other people in this community that care about them and that want them to right. succeed and that have done it themselves, mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, that's, that's And huge. like you said, they see it on TV. So mm-hmm. for a black kid, when I watch TV growing up, if I see a lawyer, I see a doctor, they don't look like me. They're white. Right. And obviously there's black lawyers, there's black doctors. So I want kids to to feel that, you know, they are represented as well, that people that look like them can do great things, just like people that are shown on their television or right. shown in their, in their school. So, and you're not only worthwhile if you right. play a sport. Exactly. Right? So, you know, a lot of, um, you know, people don't get the fact that, you know, having somebody who cares about you is a, goes a long way for somebody who's young, you know, like you just spoke of. If I know I have somebody who is investing time, energy, resources when they don't have to yep. on me, it kind of, you know, makes me want to not let them down. Right. Even if, even right. if I don't want to be better for myself, I want to be better for them. Yeah, and so yeah. these kids, I think have that kind of pressure when we're around them too, is, you know, Brandon and Bradley don't have to be here. They right. can, you know, be sitting in their houses or in Denver or going on planes, but they're coming into my neighborhood and they're coming to my school on a, you know, on a Thursday, they don't have to do this. Right. And so I want, I don't want to let them down. And hopefully, you know, that sparks something in them that, you know, lasts from when they get to middle school, high school, and hopefully to college or whatever they do when 100%. they get out of school, you yeah, know, they'll remember you. So Bradley's your, your younger brother. Mm-hmm. He plays for the Broncos, mm-hmm. but he's very much involved. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even during the season, he was yeah. coming home whenever he could. Yeah. Right. And, uh, we did the holiday launch that I spoke of in Denver. So it was yeah. at top golf. And Bradley rounded up a lot of his teammates, you know, not just the guys who are on the team, but Von Miller, you know, their uh, star running back, mm-hmm. Philip Lindsay, you know, so guys, kids who are in this Denver community at these boys and girls clubs who watch these guys on Sunday, right. now they're playing golf with them and, and knowing that somebody cares, cares about, about them. Because like I said, Von Miller, you know, makes $100 million. He doesn't have to be there at yeah. Top Golf. He gets, right. you know, Top Golf <laughs> in his backyard. And so having that um, feeling and, you know, Brad used his connections with the boys and girls club because he does a tour where he just visits everyone, you know, once yeah. a week just to, you know, play with the kids and talk to them as a superhero in the community. And uh, and they left with a hundred dollar gift card to a supermarket so they could get Thanksgiving meals. Mm-hmm. So he's he's very much involved and, and he cares about it just as much as I. And that's just kind of how we were raised, you know, too much is given, much is you know required. Right. And not saying we were millionaires, but I didn't have to struggle. Right. You know, I didn't I always have food on the table. I never went to bed hungry. Right. And a lot of kids do. And, you know, that's not fair to them. But at the same time, I want to, you know, if I can help them, help them, yep. regardless of race, religion, exactly. background. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so we know what's next. We're hoping that uh, NFL comes back. Mm-hmm. We're hoping that we get on a team. Yep. What else? Uh, so, uh, I started, or I'm starting a, a VC fund of a fund. Okay. Uh, it'll be a, pr- a private fund. Me and a former weight teammate. Uh, we're working on it right now uh, in the process of it. Hopefully, we have a deal uh, that we could invest in. Hopefully, we uh, get our stuff your, together. You got your MBA, right? Did I don't have – so I did a program at Harvard Business School that was uh, with MBA students. Okay, okay. And so they, we were paired with two MBA students who uh, were second-year students in their MBA, and they were our mentors. Got it, got it, got And so it, we went it. through our own program three months. I wish I had an MBA from Harvard Business School. But, yeah, so <laughs> um, that was – you know, that's kind of what I did with, you know, focusing off the field. I used my network. I, I got my own MBA, yeah. you know? Yeah. So yeah. what you get from MBA through networks and through, uh, you know, other stuff, I, I did it through meeting new people and, and connect them, you know, going through that Harvard business school program. And now you're using this. And now I'm using it. So, um, so we are, we're launching a fund and 
just kind of co-investing for a little bit to build a portfolio so that, you know, five, 10 years from now, we could start our own private equity yeah. fund and get $10 million checks and have something to back it up, you know, some yeah. credibility to ask for those checks. Yeah. So... So that's, that's what we're doing that's now. That's what yeah. you're doing now. So you're busy. Yeah, busy. You're busy. You're busy. You got to stay proactive. You got to stay proactive. And, uh, you know, like I said, busy's good, but yeah. never forget about the emotional connection behind it and know that it's always there no matter how busy you are every single right. moment of the day. And I, and really I think that's a lot of what people do too is cover they, it up. Yeah. They mm -hmm. over busy. They over busy their schedule to not have to focus on it. And yeah. then that even there's Yeah makes them drive uh drive out of control even faster absolutely so i guess i'm just i'm telling you from friend to friend just know that it's still there mm -hmm. and know that there are people like me that are more than willing to talk to you mm -hmm. at any time of any part of the day because right. i know that's what i needed mm -hmm. growing up and it's really hard to reach out mm -hmm. but i just want you to know that appreciate it and um <laughs> i think people that hear this story especially men in their 20s and 30s who are struggling themselves will realize that like they're not alone and um, that it's okay. Right. Like, it doesn't make you any less of a man. Yeah. In fact, I think from a human aspect, it makes people more attractive. Right. When they actually say, this is what's going on with me right now. Because mm -hmm. it makes them real. Right. And I can relate to that. Right. You know, I can tell you my whole life story right. at some right. point. Right. So I just, I'm so grateful that, that we saw each other the other day and that you opened up and, and shared your story and your journey. And, um, you know, if anyone wants to check out the Chubb Foundation, where can we find you? Uh, at Chubb Foundation, Instagram and Twitter, and then ChubbFoundation.com. All right. And then your handle? Uh, at Chubb for at my Chubb. Instagram Instagram handle. All right. And uh, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you invited me. Like you said, we ran into each other. Um, you've had this podcast for a while now. Uh, looked at my text messages. I haven't received a text from you since July 30th, <laughs> 2019. So, you know, it was just, you know, uh, well, happenstance that I got invited. I got fired. Yeah. The day I got fired. <laughs> We won't talk about that, no, but no, uh, I know. But uh, I appreciate your support. No, I, no for sure, Team Meg. Thank you. <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Six Feet Above podcast. I'm your host, Megan Armstrong. Subscribe so you never miss another episode, as a new episode is released every Tuesday. And if you're enjoying the series, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Follow the show on Instagram at six feet above podcast to keep the conversation going and feel free to reach out to me directly at Megstagram 11. This episode is a product of audiographies produced by Megan Armstrong and Denor Sapolia edited by Jacob Smolian and the music is by Keenan Willis funded by yours truly. I'll see you next time.